to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm so glad that you're tuned in this Sunday morning. Well, I hope you enjoyed last week's Easter show with Dr. Craig Evans. You can get that at godsolutionshow.com if you'd like to hear it again. This week, we're going to be having our last of the authors of How God Became Jesus, Dr. Chuck Hill, who is professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary, and he is going to be talking about his contribution to How God Became Jesus. Again, I would encourage you to go to Amazon.com and pick up How God Became Jesus today. It's a great book that refutes Ehrman's latest, and you will get a ton out of it. So today, Dr. Hill, who has also authored various other books, including Who Chose the Gospels? Probing the Great Gospel Conspiracy. I hope to have him on the show later to talk about that again. And The Early Text of the New Testament. Both those are on Amazon as well. He's authored those. He's done a lot of other great work, and he's going to be on the show with us today to talk more about this new book, How God Became Jesus, and the evidence for the truth about the deity of Jesus Christ and who he was and who he is and who the earliest followers of his saw him to be. It'll be a great show, and I'm glad that you're tuned in. You can learn more about Dr. Hill on the Reformed Theological Seminary faculty page. Welcome to The God Solution, Dr. Hill. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Well, Dr. Hill, please tell me a little bit about your background and how you came to faith in Christ, and particularly how you came to be an author with this book, maybe your apologetical background or anything like that that you'd like to share for our audience. Well, I, I grew up in, uh, in Nebraska and grew up in a uh, Christian home uh, going to church. I think I, I think I actually uh, had faith from a, a fairly early age. You know, growing up with it, it's sometimes hard to uh, uh, say exactly when it happened. But there were definitely times of uh, uh, of uh, uh, growth and and um, uh, you know, major turnarounds and so forth. Uh, certainly was was involved in. Um, in church and Christian organizations in college, and uh, you know, had various various encounters. Of course, apologetic encounters and uh, evangelistic encounters along the way. Uh, so, I, I guess you'd say that um, always had a kind of a, an apologetic interest. Um, I ended up going to seminary after after college, a few years after college, and then uh, on to do a PhD after that. Since um, about 1989, I've been teaching either in a Christian college or at a seminary. I've been at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary uh, since 1994. So that's, uh, that's a quick review. Um, brings us up to date uh, very briefly. Wonderful. Now, in this new book that you are one of the authors of, How God Became Jesus, you and the other authors attempt to rebut Ehrman's new book, How Jesus Became God. So what is Ehrman's basic thesis in How Jesus Became God, and what is the thesis of your book, How God Became Jesus? Right. Well, Ehrman's basic thesis, I would would say, is that uh, Jesus never claimed to be divine, nor did his earliest followers uh, believe he was divine, until uh, they came to the conclusion, some of them, that he had risen from the dead. 
so Ehrman thinks that based on some visions that some early Christians had, uh, they concluded that God must have raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him to heaven and, and therefore exalted him to divine status. So it was from that point that Christians began to uh, uh, think about Jesus as divine, but still at that point divine in a very lower deity sort of sense. So Ehrman has to talk about various levels, you might say, of divinity in, in the ancient world, and there was no strict monotheism and so forth. Uh, long and short, it took centuries then for uh, Christians gradually to elevate Jesus from this uh, exalted human status to Son of God, to pre-existent angel, to creator, and then finally second person of the Trinity. Uh, so that's that's kind of his his thesis, and he he tries to go about it from uh, what he consider a historian's uh, approach uh, using historical methods. The thesis of our book is that uh, belief that Jesus was both God and man goes back uh, as early as we can go in Christian tradition. You know, historically we can't establish the kind of developmental timeline that Ehrman wants to construct for Christology, basically starting out low and going higher and higher and higher over time. Uh, so... That would mean that the the Orthodox confessions and creeds, such as the Nicene Creed, you know, what the Christians um, uh, of all stripes or many stripes have have believed for a very long time, that represents a natural outworking of the seeds that are already planted in the New Testament. So it's not a radical departure, uh, not just a, an upward and upward and upward slide for uh, their views of Jesus. But uh, though expressed in different language, uh, it's, it's uh, a faithful representative, a faithful outworking, you might say, of what we have in the New Testament. Absolutely. So what is Ehrman trying to say in the section of his book that has to do with early church history? <clears throat> okay, well, that, uh, that's the, the section I was uh, tasked with responding to, and it's chapters 8 and 9 of his book where he uh, goes beyond the New Testament evidence to talk about the early church and what happened between the New Testament and uh, especially the Nicene Council, where um, uh, Christians uh, declared that Jesus was uh, co-essential, you know, this, of the same essence as God the Father. So his chapters 8 and 9 explore what happened on the way to Nicaea, you might say. Chapter 8... Um, is, is actually pretty informative in many ways about early groups in Christian history like the Ebionites, uh, the Adoptionists, the Gnostics, and the Modalists, and so forth. Um, but throughout here, and I, and I think actually readers will, will learn quite a bit there, but there are some uh, definite sub-themes, I would say, or lessons that he wants to teach us. Um, two in particular, I would say, and that, that uh, the first one would be uh, that Orthodox Christians, people who believe that Jesus is truly man and truly God, uh, Orthodox Christians are often very intolerant. Um, and he calls people like Irenaeus and Hippolytus, early Christian fathers, he calls them uh, heresy hunters. He's not the only person to come up with that that name, but 
he called them heresy hunters who were supposedly obsessed with finding doctrinal deviations in other people and uh, interested in rewriting the history of, of uh, Christianity. In other words, they were, they were bad people. Uh, another thing that he wants to, to do, I think, in this chapter in particular, is uh, to argue that history, the history of Christianity is, is full of ironies. And uh, name, uh, especially what he calls uh, the hard and fast irony of Christianity, that views once considered entirely acceptable or orthodox are later condemned as, as heretical. I think he finds that very, uh, very uh, interesting and um, worth pointing out. So his exhibit A on that is uh, this group known as the Ebionites in the early church. Um, and others who, who uh, supposedly believe that uh, what Urban would say the earliest Christians believed, and that was that Jesus was a man who was adopted by God, either at his resurrection or at his baptism, adopted by God to divine status, and uh, uh, that's what they believed. And these Ebionites who believe that what the earliest Christians were supposed to believe, um, ironically, they were later condemned uh, by the church as heretics. So those are those are kind of the sub themes of chapter eight uh, in his introduction uh, to uh, non-orthodox groups. Um, so in my response into that chapter, uh, one of the things I point out is that, uh, of course, it's not just orthodox Christians who can be uh, intolerant. Um, we find uh, examples of intolerance uh, among uh, liberal Christians and, of course, among uh, non-Christians as well, uh, that there really is something uh, to orthodoxy and heresy. You know, people are always, uh, you might say, arguing that as to who is right and who is wrong. Herman um, himself, of course, does that. He argues that he's right and other people are wrong. Uh, and the Christians that he criticizes for rewriting history uh, we're basically just doing uh, what other historians do and what uh, he would claim to be doing today. But that, that you know, that's probably a you know, point uh, we could go into more if we wanted to. But I think the second point in this chapter that is um, uh, that Christianity is full of ironies. Uh, look at his one of his exhibits, Exhibit A, you might say, uh, the Ebionites. The Ebionites are the ones who uh, supposedly experienced this great turnaround. Uh, they believed what the earliest Christians believed, but then they were condemned. Uh, it turns out that I think that uh, Ehrman mistakes both what the earliest Christians believed and what the Ebionites believed, strangely enough. I mean, he's normally such a good historian in, in many ways, but... Uh, it mistakes what they, they actually believe. The Ebionites apparently never believed that Jesus was ever elevated to divine status. Uh, they believed he was a human, pure and simple. Uh, so that would mean if he, if he believed what the, if they believed what the earliest Christians believed, then the earliest Christians would have believed just what, uh, the earliest non-Christians believed about Jesus. Uh, and, uh, that would really have been ironic. Uh, that's chapter eight. That's what he what he does in chapter eight. Chapter nine is 
called uh, Ortho Paradoxes on the Road to Nicaea. So Nicaea, of course, again means that uh, that council in 325 A.D. that met to deliberate on the Arian controversy. Uh, so the council that declared that Jesus is of the Christ is of the same essence with the Father uh, to counter the idea that he is some lesser deity. Uh, so here he introduces, Bart introduces uh, what he calls uh, the ortho-paradoxes. Uh, ortho-paradoxes is kind of a, uh, well, it's a new term that he coined. Uh, mm-hmm. Christians have always confessed that some of the things that they believe, some of the things that God has revealed to us, are paradoxical. They're seemingly seeming contradictions. They're, you might say, juxtapositions of opposites. Uh, the prime examples that the confessions that that Jesus is God and that He's man, and that the Trinity, the, the Trinity is three and yet one. Um, now, Ehrman wants to call those ortho paradoxes because I, you know, the point that he wants to make is that. Uh, these are these only came up because of the problem that the Orthodox had, and that problem was that uh, their their New Testament books sort of handed them these inherent contradictions uh, that they had to deal with, and so he calls them ortho paradoxes. Uh, apparently, uh, heterodox people didn't have to worry about those, but uh, he never talks about uh, hetero paradoxes, just ortho paradoxes. Um, Ehrman, it's clear, believes that these are hopelessly contradictory sorts of things, that Jesus was truly human and that he is truly divine. And so he calls them uh, ortho-paradoxes. But, of course, I mean, you can, of course, think what what you want. You know, one one thing that's interesting is that uh, at that point, again, I think I think Bart is stepping out of his purely historical boots um, in, you know, I say making judgments. I mean, he's not just reporting, well, these are what people call paradoxes and they, they are seeming contradictions, but he's actually deciding that they are inherent and truly contradictory, inherently and truly contradictory. Uh, so that's what he's he's doing in Chapter 9, Um so I try to uh, uh, take on some of those, uh, well, those those two particular paradoxes uh, that Jesus is God and man, and that uh, uh, there are three persons and one essence in the Trinity. This gets us into, uh, well, I essentially say that it's it's, um, it's not really right to call them ortho paradoxes because they're they're actually paradoxes of the faith itself. They go back to the New Testament and the New Testament writers. Um, and this is where I think that uh, there, he has a big problem in that you know, what he sees as inherently contradictory and impossible to reconcile, and therefore, um, you, know, you might say, a, a proof of the absurdity of, of Christianity. Uh, these were things that the, even the New Testament writers, the same ones, um, believed and seemed to glory in. In other words, John, uh, in, in his gospel, says, uh, in the beginning the Word was God, 
the Word is with God, and the Word was God. Um, and yet, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, right in the same chapter, just a few verses apart, uh, he doesn't seem embarrassed or bothered by this. In fact, he seems to glory in it. He says, we beheld his glory, glory as of the only uh, Son of the Father. So uh, I think that that uh, Bart has, has miscast this idea of orthoparadoxes, at least he's shown his hand there as, as uh, making an ultimate value judgment that these are uh, these are not true, which, again, means he's doing theology and not just history. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on 91.9 and 93.9 FM in Durango and KDUR.org online. So what do you think is the basic flaw in Ehrman's chronology of Christological development? Okay, well, uh, his, you might say his chronology, what I, what, I, what I mean by chronology of Christological development uh, again, is this idea he has that the historian can go to the New Testament and dig out the earliest bits and kind of put them in order and uh, find a chronology of what you know what the earliest Christians believed and then how they developed from that belief to another belief to another belief. So his chronology, you might say, is is that the earliest Christians uh, believed Jesus had risen from the dead, and on that basis, God exalted him to deity. And he goes to places like Romans 1 um, to prove that. Um, that was what the earliest Christians believed. And he, he digs that out of, uh, you know, out of Paul's writings uh, at a level that you know, many scholars think, think Paul is repeating earlier uh, creeds or confessions at various points in his work. So that, he thinks, is the earliest. Uh, then some Christians thought, well, maybe he was God, maybe Jesus was God before the resurrection. Maybe he became God at the time of his baptism. So according to Ehrman, that's, that's the view of the author of the Gospel of Mark. But then the Gospel of, uh, Gospel of, Mar- of uh, Matthew and Luke, Gospels of Matthew and Luke, uh, those authors thought Jesus became God at the time of his conception, because he was born of a virgin. And then by the time you get to, uh, the time you get to, uh, Paul, and even to uh, John, John's Gospel, uh, Jesus is the pre-existent uh, Word of God, or some pre-existent. He, pre- he was God before he became, uh, before he came to earth. So that's, that's what I mean by his chronological development. And of course, he goes beyond that, beyond the New Testament, into uh, the early church, and, and sees a, a further progression in Christology. Uh, so what I think is his basic flaw here is that uh, essentially he assumes that chronology rather than proves it. I mean, that, it just comes down to, to, to that. Um, he presents it as, as uh, you, know, you might say, the sort of unbiased, uh, rational conclusion of historical study. That's the way it's presented. But uh, I think if you read it closely, you see that uh, this is actually a chronology, a sort of grid that he's imposed upon the evidence rather than something that just uh, naturally f- uh, flows from it. So I could, I could go into more detail on that um, if you'd like or just uh, uh, you know, recommend that people get the book. Uh, but that, that, I think, is his basic flaw. It, it, it comes across, he wants you to believe this is just uh, uh, the impartial result of uh, historical study uh, but if you look closely, uh, it's clear that he's come to the evidence with this sort of grid 
that he imposes on it. What I would like to know is what is the accurate chronology of this Christological development? Or was there any Christological development at all? Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Uh, essentially, and, and, and you know, other scholars have, have said this, uh, essentially Christology starts out high and remains high. That is, from as far back as we can go in the sources, uh, Christians believe that Jesus was God and man. He was pre-existent God and he was man. Now, there's always, of course, some, you, could, you can speak of development in the sense that uh, they developed different ways of talking about it, different ways of asking questions, different ways of developing it. Uh, the full development in that sense is not in the New Testament. So most of the New Testament authors don't elaborate as we might hope that they do. But uh, in terms of Ehrman's uh, chronology and, and what, what, is, what do we really see in the New Testament, I would say that, uh, again, the earliest we can go sees the, the views see Jesus as both divine and human. Ehrman's method is to, to go to what he, find, he thinks are the earliest tidbits of tradition, and he finds those in Paul's letters. Paul's, Paul's letters are thought to be the earliest um, Christian writings that we have. But in his, in his letters, sometimes we have embedded even earlier bits of tradition, uh, such as when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, I delivered to you what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again from the Scriptures. So Paul's referring to something that he inherited, this confession. So, uh, in other words, when we look at those places in, in Paul's letters, we see that some of them emphasize Jesus' resurrection, but others, uh, such as in Philippians 2, 6 through 11, they emphasize even Jesus' preexistence. <clears throat> so there's where Paul says uh, that Christ, uh, even though he, he existed uh, as, uh, as deity, as, as divine, existed as God, uh, didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself. He took the form of a servant and uh, was therefore exalted by God uh, greatly, and so forth. So he, he starts out with this idea, this pre-existing idea that Jesus himself pre-existed his earthly sojourn. Uh, so that's what I would say is the, uh, why I would say that as early as we can go back, we, we can't say that uh, those confessions that emphasize his resurrection uh, are earlier than those that emphasize his pre-existence. They're, they're both pre-Pauline, and Paul obviously integrated them into his own uh, conception of Christ as pre-existent deity and as uh, incarnate human. So I, I would say that, that again, the, the, the earliest sources we have in the New Testament already present Jesus as divine and human. I agree. So, concluding the show, what should people take away from this debate between Ehrman and the other scholars that contradict him? I think what they should take away is that the question, who is Jesus, is the monumental question. And here I'd actually agree with, with Ehrman, who makes a case for everybody needing to be interested in this question. Uh, given the importance of the figure of Jesus of Nazareth in history, uh, Ehrman says even the non-Christian ought to be interested in pursuing that question, to find out who was this figure at the, the center of 
of much of Western uh, civilization. Uh, now, in the end, I hope that uh, you know, anybody who wants to read Ehrman's book would also read our book and would see that Ehrman's reconstruction of the evidence is not simply the dispassionate conclusion you know, drawn from the historical facts, uh, but that person would see Jesus for who he is, and that, that this uh, this whole debate would force people to read the New Testament for themselves and find therein the Jesus who is, the Jesus who uh, always existed, the Jesus who, uh, as Paul said, uh, loved me and gave himself for me, gave himself over uh, to death uh, as a payment for our sins, uh, someone who, uh, whom God uh, publicly uh, vindicated by raising him from the dead. So I hope that uh, more people, Christians and non-Christians alike, will be driven back into the New Testament uh, and there to seek uh, for the real Jesus. Well, Dr. Hill, it's been a pleasure talking with you this morning, and I hope everybody will go out and get How God Became Jesus. Are there any other books that you'd like to promote or any websites where people could maybe read more about you or anything like that? Oh, well, that's nice of you to ask. Uh, I guess they could go to the Reformed Theological Seminary Orlando website uh, if they want to uh, see anything uh, more about me. There's, uh, I, well, I might mention one book that that I've written that's, um, uh, I hope, pretty accessible to most people. It's called Who Chose the Gospels? Uh, Probing the Great Gospel Conspiracy. And it is about uh, the New Testament canon, particularly the four Gospels, and and uh, asks the question, uh, why do we have four Gospels, no less and no more? And uh, you might say takes on the, the prevalent idea, the prevalent myth, I would say, that uh, the Church only chose its Gospels and its New Testament books in the 4th century uh, under pressure by Constantine and a bunch of bishops. Uh, so if anybody is interested in uh, learning more about uh, the New Testament canon and how we got it, uh, I'd recommend that book. That sounds wonderful. But I'm just so thankful. I can't express to you how thankful I am that you guys did this. I'm always frustrated beyond belief how Ehrman writes bestseller after bestseller, and I think so many people don't have yeah. the faintest clue, and they're just going to be easily influenced by this without anything to contradict it. I have his last book, uh, Did Jesus Really Exist?, and I was waiting for the new one to come out, ready to counter it on the show here. And all of a sudden, I see uh, how God became Jesus side by side on Amazon. And I, I just thought this is the most genius idea ever that scholars like yourself would be on top of this and have a response right away. So I'm thankful beyond belief for this. Oh, well, thanks. You know, I am too. It, you, I'm sure you got the story from, from Mike Bird on how it, how it came about, but it's uh, it's. <laughs> Pretty remarkable to to have just had a few weeks really to work on this book and and uh, yeah it, it's it's great that yeah. we have the opportunity. I hope you guys keep it up with the next ones coming out, man. I hope you guys uh, keep it up. Well, Doctor Hill, thank you so much for being on the God Solution this morning. My pleasure. We'll talk yeah. to you later. Okay. Okay. Bye. All right, thanks. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Doctor Hill. You'll be able to get this at GodSolutionShow.com while you're there. 
Let us know what you think about the show and whether or not there's anything you'd like us to address in the future. We're going to be having some incredible guests coming up in May, including Dr. Craig Keener, Dr. Craig Blomberg, and Dr. Gary Habermas. So definitely get ready for a great month and let us know also what you'd like us to discuss on the show in the future. Again, check out Dr. Hill's books on Amazon. Look for Dr. Chuck Hill on Amazon to see some of his books. Well, I'd like to close with the gospel again today. If you've never made a decision to put your faith and trust in Christ, you can come to him today recognizing that you're sinful and need a Savior and put your faith in him through prayer, saying, Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are, and that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again to give me new life. Please come into my life. Please be my Savior and Lord. The Bible says the second you put your faith and trust in him, you'll be adopted into his family, guaranteeing you a life of abundance and meaning on this planet and an eternity with him in heaven. Why don't you visit a local church this morning? Go to GodSolutionShow.com to see a list of local churches and the times and places that they meet. Well, that's about it for the God Solution this week. Thanks for tuning in. Remember, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. Have a wonderful Sunday afternoon. Yeah,